The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the NFS Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most anything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there, young Yoda. Young Yoda. Mandalorian. <laughs> so, <laughs> looking forward to this today. Um, just a little bit of background. Um, Jennifer and I met on LinkedIn over a little backwards and forwards on wealth certification and certifications in general. So, I'm pretty sure we're going to get into that. But... Uh, I'm excited to speak to Jennifer because there's a, I've got a bit of an East Coast attitude, I would say, and Jennifer's got a West Coast approach. So we'll see how that circle circles itself, squares itself around. Yeah. So uh, today's uh, guest's uh, calling card reads Global Sustainability and Wellness Expert Transforming the World. Not just the neighborhood, like not, not your neighborhood block, but the entire world. <laughs> we love that. <laughs> She's a lead fellow, holds certification with WELL, and is a uh, faculty member of the International WELL Building Institute. You're also founder and CEO of a Sustainable Production, which is your current company that's been around for a long time. It's a woman-owned, full-service global sustainability and wellness consultant firm that advocates for creating sustainable and healthy places. So already you're speaking my language, and uh, somewhat of Adam's. I think Adam has a heart somewhere in there, Adam. He's lurking around. <laughs> So welcome to the show, Jennifer Berthold-Jolovic. Good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jennifer, you earned a Batch of Arts in Social Work, I guess, especially in psychology from Ohio University, and then you went on to get your master's in applied social sciences from Case Western Reserve University. And that's one of the things that we love about you, taking sort of an, an adjacent field of study, one that's very important for society. My wife, by the way, had her degrees in uh, social work and psychology, so know a little bit about the field. Your passion, though, for it has turned you into the world of architecture and design. It's earned you a number of awards, including Women in Sustainability Leadership Award, International Wellbuilding Institute Leadership Recognition Award, uh, USGBC Los Angeles Chapter Leadership Award, and also a rising star in Women Making a Difference. I got to know, and I know my our guests want to know, what took you to uh, an adjacent field of study and decided to turn that into a passion to transform not the neighborhood, but the world. Sure. So it's such an interesting story. I grew up a tree-hugging hippie from the start. You know, I was the 14-year-old who was on the board of directors for a homeless nonprofit and was, you know, doing everything I could to help people from a very young age and got my master's, like you said, you know, my undergrad in social work and psychology and graduate in social work to run nonprofits. And while I was doing that, my aunt was like, hey, come work on this movie. And so I went and worked on one movie and then worked on a second movie. And I was really burnt out from working in sexual assault and foster care and adoption, two very broken systems in uh, social work and was really bitter, honestly. And I was like, wait, I can go make money and have fun for a little while. I have this master's fall back on. And so I got into the entertainment industry and started working in movies and music for 10 years. And luckily, the person I worked for back in 2006 was building the world's greenest aviation facility. And that became my job. And I said, 
lead platinum? Like, what is this? Why is it my job? And I produce movies and music. And by 2008, we had built the world's first and greenest aviation facility, Hangar 25 in Burbank, California. And it produced so much extra energy that it fueled something like 30 houses in Burbank every year with, with all the excess energy going back and just a really phenomenal project. But what we learned back in 2008 when everyone else was closing their doors was that you could actually do sustainability at traditional cost. You didn't have to mark it up 30 and 40%. So we opened a general contracting firm in 2008. And I went over there and spent four years there as their director of sustainability. And we essentially provided sustainability as part of the services that they did in general contracting. So all of their projects could be lead. And worked on a lot of first projects and the, the cities, the country, the world. It was a lot of fun. And after four years, they came to me and said, we're holding you back. People want to hire you as a consultant and don't need us as a GC. You really should start your own company. And so 10 years ago, I started a sustainable production. And you know, I expected to be focusing on lead. But at that same point, the well-building standard was getting started in the background. And I was lucky enough that they happened to be testing it on all of my projects. And so as such, I started giving them very real feedback. And so I started doing consulting for them early on before it was released. So I've been a part of well and and the formation of, of that standard. And, and that's been a lot of fun and really rewarding. But I joke that I took this long path to get back to really taking care of people. I'm just using buildings and policies and organizations as my means of doing my social work now. And, and I actually feel successful. I'm like, I'm making a difference and I see measurable results in saving the world. And, and I used to do pageants as a kid. And I was literally that pageant girl that was like, I want to save the world. I want world peace. That's what I want. And so, yeah, just focusing on my neighborhood would have never been big enough for me. It's a worldview that I'm looking at. I really get that like we're all just interconnected. If we're not paying attention to the people on the other side of the world or next door or north or south of us, we're, we're missing the boat. So. I love that. So, sustainability work is social work. I love that analog. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. And then, you know, and it's funny because there's many, there's a, a phrase, equifinality, many roads lead to Rome. I used to use the term as many ways to skin a cat, but cat lovers hate that. So I stopped yeah. doing that. <laughs> but you're right. You know, you know, you think about your passion that you had as a young girl and, and then your academics. And then like a lot of people in that field, you do get burnt out. It's a tough world, no doubt about it, because you're always dealing with the consequences. And so it's very much a reactive system as opposed to proactive. That's not to say that the world of social work and social sciences doesn't have proactive solutions. It does. But many people, especially those in the trenches, are always working in a reactive world and the burnout rate is, can be quite high. And yet you found a way later on to stay engaged and make a difference. That's a cool story, right? It's been a wild ride for sure. But I, I joke, I'm like, this is, I ended up exactly where I was meant to be. You know, it just, it took a little while. I got some really great experience, had some fun and met some incredible human beings. Now I get to really love what I do and do what I love and, and get, get back and make a difference. Uh, you know, this sustainability as social work, I love that because there's some great examples there. You sort of reinvented yourself as you've got along, right? So you've had, the days of a 40-year career in one job are over, right? So you're a good example of someone who's started somewhere, moved adjacent, reinvented, but somehow it's all still connected and comes back. Because when you take, I'm a big fan of systems thinking, right? So a system is where you draw the boundary, right? So sustainability social work is only about moving that boundary of the system out a bit, right? The system is 
And when you think about social work, social work is really dealing with a reaction to a bad systemic outcome. And sustainability work is very similar, right? It is a reaction to a bad systemic outcome, right? It's a tragedy of the commons. That's the difference in scale, right? Social work is more personal, whereas sustainability is tragedy of the commons. It's a, it's a macro issue, right? So you've gone from micro to macro. So I would argue you're still in the same field, actually. I've never thought of it like that. You've taught me something now. I love that. Great. Yeah. That's why well has resonated so much for me, right? Is it's that people-based aspect of, I love sustainability and I love lead, but it was really lacking the human aspect for me, which is where I had gotten my start. And so I think when when well was created, I was like, oh, we're focusing on people again. And this is so important. Let's talk about that because the, the problem with words like, climate change, sustainability, they're a bit nebulous. People have trouble, like, what is that? Do you know? Because we're in it, it's easier for us to understand it. But, you know, I, I think personally on climate change, that's one of the, the worst branded exercises in the history of the world. It's actually environmental degradation right, and resource depletion. If you speak to someone about climate, they think, oh, I can't control that. That's a God-given thing, right? But we can all impact resource depletion, environmental degradation. And that's where I think there's been a mistake made. So sustainability exists on that plane as well, right? What is sustainability? So for me, it's about efficiency in building use, reducing the environmental impact of what we do and what we build and how we use the buildings, right? So how is sustainability for you in the context of LEED versus, say, the well system? Sure. So I like to quote Rick Fedrizi, you know, who created USGBC and LEED and that um, his explanation of, of well is that it's the second wave of sustainability. Right. And I really like that because to me, I've really watched, you know, when I started in sustainability 15 years ago or very different as a kid, right, as a member of Greenpeace and PETA and, and everything I could get my hands on to be a, an activist for the environment at that age really sustainability is broadened, right? Like we know that it used to be, you know, recycle and then it was recycle, reduce, reuse, all of it, right? And, and it got bigger and bigger. And then suddenly we were looking at our buildings and our transportation and our waste. And so as we've started to grow what sustainability is, when I look at it, it's, it's equity, right? Like we can't even have sustainability without an equity conversation as the foundation. And that's what our company really looks at. It's equity, sustainability, and wellness, but they're all interconnected. You can't have one without the other. How do you have a healthy planet without healthy people? And how do you have healthy people without a healthy planet? And if there's no equity within there, then none of that really exists in the first place. And so I think that sustainability has grown. You know, I look at resilience. I look at ESG and GRES reporting. All of that now is a part of sustainability. And so I do think, Adam, it's, it's a question of how do you define it now? Because it really is a broad term that I think encompasses a lot of different areas because they're all interconnected. Yeah, they are. And I, I just, a little sidebar discussion. We've had this with uh, previous guests that when we start talking about things like green and lead and sustainability. And a lot of these terms have a, either have lost their meaning or they mean nothing to people. Yeah. And you know, when I, so when I graduated out of school in 1983, all the things that we've been, that, industry has been promoting the last several years in terms of building design and sustainable design, all that. We taught, we were taught that in the late seventies, you know? And so my career has been one of frustration because <laughs> I've, I've spent, and Adam, you're the same way. I mean, we've spent decades and decades trying to tell people that, you know, what we're doing today is stuff that we learned a long, long time ago. And there's just been this resistance 
to these fundamental principles and 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 we're now we're starting to see it and you know when i die hopefully by then we won't need to have these special terms and organizations it will become part of our culture and that's why you know i've stopped using those green and lead and and sustainability and well these are all great terms but ultimately it comes down to earth stewardship and i like the word earth stewardship because people get that more than they get what green is because you can't i mean i suppose you could bastardize world uh, earth stewardship but there's a meaning to stewardship what's your what's your reaction to that those words and yeah, I love that. Well, I think that, you know, because for me, sustainability is so much more than just buildings. And, you know, I'm thinking about the animals, the planet, right? Like I'm a vegetarian of 30 years, I think. Oh, actually, it's 30 years this month. It was April. It was around <laughs> my mom's birthday when I was 14. So I just gave my, my age away since my birthday was last month. But yeah, so 30 years ago, vegetarian, for me, you know, I've been looking at sustainability holistically and the treatment of all sentient beings, all of that kind of stuff. So I think when you say earth stewardship, it opens it up to a totally different level of like connection to the earth as opposed to products and materials and things. It's actually, it becomes about people and, and living beings on a living planet. And I think it, it creates a visceral attachment as opposed to just sustainability, like you said, which is thrown around in every possible way these days. Yeah. We had uh, Lloyd Alter on, uh, Adam, I don't know. I was thinking of him. You must have read my mind. Yeah. And he, you know, he triggered some really good thoughts in our conversations as you have already done in our short time here. But one of the things that he, and I started to use it, that's looking at the amount, what percentage of the built environment is actually usable and what part isn't because of bad indoor environments. And we started to talk about the scale of the problem we have. So you take one office in one office tower in one city block, and that say that due to bad fenestration systems, bad sound, thermal comfort, all these kinds of things, that you can't use 30% of the floor area, right? One office space, right? Well, then you go set up, like right now I'm downtown, there's a building across from me, it's probably 38 stories tall, right? And I don't know how many hundreds of offices are in there. But you start to think about it, right? Adam, you know, when we talked about this, 30% of one office and one office tower has unusable space because of the design and the construction, the materials of construction, and you gross that up through the entire building, one building on one city block, and how many office towers are like that in a city block, and how many are in the city, and how many cities in the province and, the, and in the state, and how many are in the continent, the nation, and then you start to gross it up around the world. You begin to, re- so we want to talk about sustainability and earth stewardship. When 30% of our, and I'm just throwing that number out, it could be less, it could be more, but the capital resources that are wasted, building spaces that we can't occupy, and then you throw in the, the earth resources that we've raped from the below us and around us to build that unusable space. We need a new metric in the industry. And one that that metric should be, what is the percentage of usable space and start forcing property developers and architects and their associate professionals to understand the costs. We can't, you know, the word sustainability, you know, use the word equity. Well, there's equity, earth equity, society equity in this waste. And we have to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the the carbon, not requirements, but goals that people are putting out there for carbon neutral, they're starting to look at these things. And I think what is really driving the market and is going to drive this a lot is the ESG and GRES reporting that people are doing. So now that people are reporting their environmental social governance, they're starting to look downstream at their suppliers. And it's really interesting because 
we're having a ton of clients come to us. And in the last three to six months, it's been fascinating. We've never had these calls before where they're like, we need a KPI that we can put in place because our, our investors are asking what we're doing or, hey, yeah. we need to report this up. And, and even we just responded to this RFP for 4,000 lead certifications, which was a very large RFP. It also wow. had 4,000 Energy uh, Star certifications as well. And, and it was very, very aggressive timing. So we responded with what we thought would be a, a good solution to what they were looking at. But you know, as we were starting to dive into this and look at it, we started to ask questions about like, okay, are you doing this for reporting? Are you doing this? And as we were putting together our RFP, what we found was they must be doing a ton of ESG reporting because all the questions they were asking in an RFP, which didn't used to be there was, you know, what is your equity? What is your, you know, and it started asking you all of these questions. Are you a B Corp? You know, do you have WB, well, the WB and all of that was typically there, but it started to get much more in depth. Yeah, Yeah, it was like, (laughs) yeah, and it was fascinating to see, you know, that they're now passing that down. And so even as they're looking at people to be hiring as as little as a consultant, not that this is a little scope on 4,000 projects, but typically your sustainability or wellness consultants, a very small part of the project, so to speak, right? And so it was just really interesting to see how, I think, Robert, how some of that's going to be driven and how RFPs are going out now for buildings because it's being reported back up in the investment and in all of that money up front, they're going to want to know, how are you helping us meet all of our reporting and our KPIs and our ESGs that we're reporting? And so I think that that's what's going to start driving that quite a bit. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. So it's interesting because this conversation, we've really been going from macro to micro all the way, right? So stewardship is a macro thing that can be handled at the individual level, right? So if everybody takes responsibility for it, you get a macro outcome. So I love that. But our industry suffers a little bit from like the word equity. So as soon as you said that, because I'm a money, I'm a money whore, I immediately started thinking stocks and shares. First thing that came in my mind. So equity is one of them words like sustainability. I think all progress and understanding has to begin with a definition. So if equity is part of the next evolution of sustainability, it has to be well-defined. Equity as, I don't know, some ratio or formula or KPI, right? That's really where it needs to go for it to connect. Because sometimes you say equity and people will like switch off. I immediately go stocks and shares. Some people will just do this and some people will just go to sleep and some people will get excited, right? And the only way you stop that is to like, define it. You've got to say equity as boom, 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 right? Sustainability, for me, begins at lead goal, right? When I used to, back in the days when I had a firm and we used to do lead consulting, I'd say, oh, anyone can get lead silver if you trip over a bike rack. No one cares about that, right? You know, bragging begins at lead goal. This is years ago. So now you could probably argue bragging begins at lead platinum. But the reason you can say that is because there's a definition, lead platinum, right? So it does well, so I'll ask you a question in a minute. <laughs> what I'm trying to get to is I understand the lead system pretty well because I've worked within it. I don't understand the well system. So how would you differentiate, say, the well certification from the lead certification? Is it better at these, these sort of definitions and widening out sustainability? So, well, I would say a few things. To start with, well is really lucky, right? They had the thought leadership. So even before the thought leadership from USGBC came over, well was, you know, 
the, the parent company Delos before IWBI was created, they sat down and they invited, you know, the Living Future Institute, they invited USGBC, they invited, you know, certain people in the industry that really were leaders and at the forefront of sustainability, right? And they said, right. okay, what worked with this? What didn't work with this? You know, if you were to do this differently, what would that look like? Yeah. And they really got that information, right? So Rick Fadrizi could say, you know, this is what what I, what we did wrong and what would be better. And and Jason McLennan could say, well, you know, if if this is what we did, maybe we sh- we could have done this, but this really worked. And then I sat at that same table. I was really lucky enough to be at this meeting of the minds in New York back, I think it was in 2014. And I told them as a consultant, this is what works and what doesn't work with both of your systems, you know? And I'm yeah. I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but this is someone that's doing the work on the ground and can tell you that this, this, and this doesn't work and this, this, and this does. And so I think what Well has done from the beginning, very, very well, you realize how often you say well without being the, <laughs> the, the title of the certification and ASAP, I say ASAP a lot as well, as well, is that they really listen. So they went to the experts when they were creating Well Portfolio, they did the same thing. They spent a year doing an advisory with portfolios of all types around the world but they also went to everyone who created lead volume and said what worked in lead volume and what didn't work in lead volume so that we get well portfolio right. So again, they, they really learned from their mistakes and from their wins, took all of that and then went out to the experts and have done advisories for everything that they've done. So it's all been super transparent. Anyone can apply to be on the advisories. They're publicly posted and they're global. Right. So you also don't have this experience that you know someone's controlling it. It really is a global voice and their goal is that one rating system can work for every typology because human health is really based in certain certain things. So there's, you know, those same few preconditions, but then there's a lot of optimizations to choose your own adventure based on typology, location, all of those types of, of variables. So it's, it's like one, <laughs> one system to rule them all. How are lead reacting to the well certification? Is there a tension between the two? I don't think there's a tension because of the fact that they both use GBCI as the third-party verification. So um, if you're submitting your leader well certification, it's going to, you know, Green Business Certification Inc. I don't know how many years it's been, but it's still as hard for me to change their name from their previous name in my head. And they really work well together. So something IWBI has done very well is <laughs> effectively is to create crosswalks. So anything that exists in lead, whether it's, you know, your, your glazing, your air quality, well has ensured that they're the same thing or that well may go above that, right? They may right. say, well, that's not rigorous enough, but they ensure that they're using the same standards, the same codes, the same thing if there's an overlap so that you're not confused as to why. So I think that's really beneficial. I also don't think there's a lot of overlap there. It's a very right. small area of air quality and daylight that really focus on, right. on what you would be looking at as an overlap. And so IWBI has done a lot of work to ensure that they can symbiotically work together and, and work with all the rating systems globally. So Briam, any of them that you could be working with, you'll find those crosswalks that tell you exactly where there's overlap between other rating systems and the well-building right. standard to make it easier. So I don't see attention. I'm a lead AP and a well AP and I push both to my clients. And you know, sometimes we do one, sometimes we do the other. Sometimes we create a white glove, you know, specifically for them. That's not either certification, but takes, you know, the knowledge and research of both of them. You know, Jennifer, we've had Jerry Udelson on uh, twice now, I think, Adam. Yeah, yeah. And I always like uh, Jerry because he tends to come into the conversation with a two by four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in our first interview that we had with him, 
he mentioned the number of programs, building programs, certification programs around the world. I was shocked. I just, we already knew that there was too many and that people get paralysis through analysis. And, you know, the general person on the street hasn't got a clue what any of this stuff means. Adam, do you remember the number? Well, I think when he came on, which was over a year ago, he said there were more than 600 building certifications in the world and climbing. That was before well, actually, I think. It's not a small number. <laughs> no. So how do you, in your mind, Jennifer, when you think about over 600 programs around the world and the consequence of that, I mean, that's a monster, a number of oh, yeah. documentation and requirements. And, you know, that, again, that's one of the, I guess one of the reasons why I'm so cynical about building programs, having learned to stop back in the seventies and now we're and since in 40 de- or four decades, all I've seen is 600 programs develop, and still we struggle to get people to do the fu- get the fundamentals right. What's your comment on that? Yeah, it's I can say our clients definitely get certification fatigue, overwhelm. They don't know where to start. Even for us, we do a lot of master planning now, where we're working with 100 acres, a thousand acres, and it's mixed use, right? It's multifamily. It's everything you could possibly think of. Amphitheaters, right? And and the clients that are coming to us with these large master plans are also looking at them to be truly sustainable and healthy, right? And, and so we're coming and pushing back with things, not in lead, but really pushing the thought of what, what these master plans for these communities could look like. And it's a little hard for us to start, honestly, because they've heard about different things and they want to know. And we go through this exercise on each one to figure out, okay, is there, you know, is, is eco districts better? You know, is, is this better? What works? What I've found, especially working with global portfolios, so one of the things that our company is is experts in is working globally at scale. My the president of our company, John Harrison, spent 12 years at Starbucks and certified 1,600 buildings in the lead volume program in over 20 countries and every all 50 states, right? So, and we've been doing well portfolio globally now for a few years as well with some very large clients, and so. When we're looking at something, especially at the portfolio level, we're looking for something that is going to work in various typologies. A lot of our clients aren't offices. We tend to get everything but office clients when we're looking at large scale, which is fun. So we're looking at what's going to work across their portfolio in different territories, in different countries. Well, for us, because they did such a great job with portfolio and creating well version two that was based on existing buildings. So you don't have to do a ton of design and construction work. It really, it, it's flushed out as the best to us. It's very transparent. It's very global. They give you all the information. They, they let you see behind the curtain to everything they're doing. And uh, that's been rare. That, that I've seen with rating systems and standards and certifications that you get to see everything very transparent, everything cited, all of the data being released, and then having a partner in Delos that's got a lab that's doing testing and putting all of that out um, very transparently as well. I feel like well is something we can trust. You know, we're on so many of the advisories. We see the leadership. IWBI is one of two organizations globally, I can say in the last 30 years that I've been working with nonprofits and organizations that I actually enjoy working with every person I've worked with at their company. And I bet I've worked with 100 to 200 different individuals very intimately over the last, as long as IWBI has existed. And some of those people came from Dayless before that. So, you know, nine years now. And that's rare to be able to say that about people. I feel like they really, they're driven by mission and vision. Right. They are very much, right? It's, it's Rick, it's Rachel, it's Judith. It's all these incredible people that 
from USBC with the best of intentions. And I think it's like they've, they've gotten the second shot of really making a go at it and making a difference. And they're getting to do it with people now, you know, through buildings and they're just doing everything right. It makes it really easy, really usable, really fun, but it's robust. It has testing and measurement and verification in all the right ways. And so for us, we've, we've really stuck to well. And when it comes to sustainability, you know, lead is what most people in the U.S. are using. Now, when we get to another country, we may be looking at Bream or Estadama or whatever that might look like. Um, but some of those are code related, right? Like if, if you're in the UAE, you're doing Pearl Estadama and that's part of your code compared to whether you're choosing to do Bream or if that's a code somewhere else. So a lot of it, I think, is based on location that we're up to 600. I do think in certain areas, you see certain rating systems that are are accepted or more predominant. And I do see well as the global health and wellness platform that people are using. It's really versatile from the health safety rating without testing that's perfect for COVID, or if you want to get into certifications with testing, or if you don't want to do certifications, but you want to benchmark, then you have well portfolio as an organization where you can slowly incrementally, you know, set goals and look at where you're at versus where you want to go across however many projects you may have. And so I think they've made it robust enough, but easy enough that everybody can really jump in and, and play regardless of where you are or whatever typology you are in. And that's why I think it will surpass lead. Your question, Adam, earlier is you you had mentioned, you know, do I think that well will surpass? So what I was saying is I do think wealth will supersede lead and volume and numbers. And I think that's for probably two or three reasons. One, not everyone cares about sustainability, right? It's just, it's a fact. Not everybody cares. They don't think it's an issue. They're not willing to put money into it. Second, everybody seems to get health and wellness. They know someone who's had cancer. They know someone who's gotten sick from their house. They know someone with asthma, allergies, all these things. Now that COVID's out there, people really understand that the places where we live, work, learn, play matter, right? It's not just a slogan. It actually meant something. So I think people are more eager to invest in the people when they know that that's 90% of their budget. But looking at how much money are you spending on energy when that's 1% of your annual budget, there's a huge ROI in their people when they start increasing health and wellness and productivity and absenteeism goes to all those things that we know happen when we improve health and well-being in a space. So I do think it will supersede. I also think just by sheer numbers, the Well Portfolio Program was created so effectively and efficiently that it's much easier to use than Lead Volume is at this point. And until Lead Volume can really figure out how to do what Well has done at the portfolio level, it does limit their ability to grow and scale as rapidly as Well has with the health safety rating and with Well Portfolio. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. It's interesting. A lot of clients I'm working with in the Middle East at the moment, since League went to version four, there was a 74% drop off. Now, part of that was everyone rushed to get the old one done, right? But there was a 74% drop off worldwide, which is devastating if you're a business. And the other pushback I get from clients, particularly in the Middle East, is the cost of implementing it on new construction, right? So I think Well did one thing brilliantly, which was the name Well. You can't argue with that, right? No one's going to argue with that. But what's the cost 
delta between, say, on a new construction project. If I got a you know, 500,000 square foot office for lead, you know, just the lead consulting fees alone are going to be $200,000 maybe. You've got to do an energy model. You've got and then all the consequential costs. How does well compare to that? Sure. So I have the experience and what I've seen from, you know, feedback coming back from around the world and other consultants is well tends to be much less expensive than lead. And it's for a few reasons. You do have all those ancillary lead costs, right? Your energy model, your commissioning agents, all those those things that you may have, as well as the consultants. Consultants are doing a lot of documentation and templates, right? So that's, that's a huge expense. With well, you're paying, you know, your registration, your certification, just like you do on lead. But instead of paying for commissioning and energy modeling, you're paying for performance verification testing, right? And you can hire your own testing agents that are approved by G. Extraneous costs you have to have beside your consultant. Our consulting fees for well are typically less than lead because there's less work for us to do. We don't have to do as much work, A, because the client can fill out what they have, and B, because the performance testing agent is coming out and verifying. So a lot of times, our clients have to check a a letter of assurance, which means checking a box, initialing, and saying, yes, we did this, because they're going to come out and they're going to third-party verify it. They just want to know that an MEP or an architect has agreed that, yes, we did this, and you can come out and verify it. So is there like a percentage? I mean, rough. Is it like 20% less, 30%? There's less documentation. And it really varies based on square footage because of economies of scale, right? So when it's a, when it's a under a 20,000 square foot building or project, you may be, you know, looking at a couple of dollars a square foot for registration, certification, testing, and consulting. Whereas when you get up into a larger building for all of those fees, you could end up at 50 cents a square foot for registration, certification, consultant, testing fees, right? So it, it really is a very, very scale on on that aspect. But when you look at what that, that that's a one-time fee that you're paying for all of those things and the return on investment from these people all being in a healthy building with healthy policies and procedures, the return on investment or that savings is ongoing with that first you know cost yeah. that you have up front. So and then on the architect MEP general contracting side the documentation is way less as well, right? So with lead where the GC is dealing with all of the MR and IEQ documentations from subcontractors, right? With it, although it's a little better with lead before and how we document those those credits. In and well when we're doing that, it's a lot of saying yes, we've done this and they're checking boxes and signing again because they're going to test the VOCs when they come in. They don't need you to document like every VOC that was used on the space or material or product. Instead, you're going to check the box and they'll test it to make sure that it's meeting it. So the general contractor has less to do. The architect's work is different. Instead of doing you know, the design type of stuff that they would be doing and measurement, et cetera, it's a lot of like very basic answers, signing off on stuff. We as a consultant provide all the sample narratives so essentially, our clients go in and erase the yellow red stuff and put in their answers on all the documents that are needed if they're needed. Right. There's very few in-depth mechanical, electrical, plumbing type of, of documentation needed. So the costs seem to be much less of yeah. cost than lead. Less of a bureaucracy, right? Jennifer, I want to get into yeah. um, one, of the, one of the disconnects that I get, and Adam has it as well, is as coming from both involved in developing codes and standards and then also as a practitioner and then also as an observer of these standards. And I'll give you one example. And that is, is that over the last four decades, I've done research work on 
design professionals and their competencies in using ASHRAE standards, for example. So both lead and well reference, you know, 62.1, 62.2 in the housing, 55 in the thermal comfort. But what I have found, and this has been consistent for four decades, is that less than one and a half percent of design professionals can actually do a compliance test to ASHRAE 55, thermal comfort. That's when you, so you think about the benchmark that is, as, that is stated within these programs, well as one of them, and we had Dr. Nicholas Clement on who worked with, within the Mayo Clinic and, and that. And so when, we, when well came along, I was really excited to hear it because of the environmental, indoor environmental requirements. But the disconnect between what the standards and certification recalls for and what actually is happening in the field is big. When you can, when you have, you know, literally, I mean, I remember giving a lecture at the building science camp in uh, Boston, Joe Stebrook and his company, and there were 600, 400 of North America's top practitioners in architecture, building, mechanical design, and only one and a half percent of them were competent within Ashford 55. And that has been consistent. I thought that that was an anomaly, but it's not. It has maintained that number for many, many decades. And we see that also with air quality. So, you know, in terms of ASHRAE 62.1 and 62.2, and then Canada, we also have a ventilation requirement for residential buildings, CSA F326. Within those standards is a requirement to do source control. Nobody teaches engineers and architects and mechanical contractors and interior designers about source control. We're starting to see it more. And I've never done the research work to see how many people were competent in doing source control analysis, but I'm guessing it's probably one and a half percent too. How do you address what, I mean, what gets promoted in all of these standards and everybody's waving the flag and it's, you know, great, great stuff. But when you get down into the trenches, nobody does it. I only have two answers for that. So the first one is clients do avoid the air and water quality and the testing and the expensive features, right? So the same thing as lead when we're looking at points, are people spending a lot of time in air quality or energy? No, because they're really expensive. I mean, sometimes in energy, right? Because you've got your 18 or however many points to choose from, but really a lot of people avoid those unless like, you know, some clients are really heavy on energy savings or water savings or whatever it is. Um, And then when it comes to well, same thing, unless they're really committed for some reason to air quality or to water quality, because we do a great job with the basic water quality, just with, with what's required. But in the, on the air side and thermal comfort side and even sound, I would say those are the ones where people, when they start getting technical, they do the bare minimum. And, and I was laughing when you asked this because we've been really successful for 15 years. And I, I don't even not need to knock on wood because this one got blown up. But um, literally had made it 15 years and all of them. And then all of a sudden on a project recently, it was a historical building and it was a corn shell project inside of a corn shell project and doing well. And I had sat down with them up front, gone through every well feature, what we were doing, all the, you know, standards. And all of a sudden, like we asked for them to sign the MEP letter of assurance that says, yes, we've met, you know, 62 or point whatever, right? I can't even think right now, 62.1-2010. And uh, I think that's what it was, 62.1-2010 that they were supposed to have signed off on. And they come back and they're like, well, we're not meeting that. And I'm like, wait, what? This is a precondition. We talked about this in our kickoff thread, like when we did a page by page turn, like, and by the way, this is code. Like I've looked up your code in the city, like, and then this, like, how, how'd you not meet this? And so I can't even tell 
how long of a process it was that we had to go through and go back and forth and thank goodness. So this is what's really interesting is that's not our job, right? Like to really understand ASH, right? Like that's why we have mechanical engineers. It's not a sustainability or wellness consultant. Like we don't get into that. It specifically says in our agreements, like that's very technical. Our insurance doesn't cover that. We don't do that. However, we're lucky enough that, you know, we have someone on our team who is a mechanical, you know, expert and understands this stuff enough to have the conversations and go back and forth. And, and we ended up having to write an AAP for this project, an alternative adherence, you know, path around testing, which is extremely expensive really. And what happens if you don't pass because there's not the right error, you know, and it, so it's, it's been really interesting on that project to see where they're going and like, do we continue on with certification or do we just scrap it knowing this precondition is now going to cost this much money. And it was the first time in 15 years I had come across somebody not meeting, like we do a really great job up front of discussing, you know, which codes, which, you know, ash rate, this is what you need to meet for this feature, whether it's 55 or you know 62 or whatever it is. And so I do agree people don't understand it, but we usually work that out in the front. What's interesting is we're finding that people, owners expect us as a consultant to be able to teach their mechanical electrical plumbing engineers, despite the fact that they're supposed to be the experts and we're the experts in the certifications and telling them what they need to do. So we have become experts in that and luckily have experts on our team to be able to do that. But it's really hard for those really small consulting, you know, lead well consultants that are a one or two person show that don't have that kind of expertise. They're not going to be able to provide the services. Mm -hmm. Clients are really expecting when the MEPs don't know how to do this and you're not having to teach the MEP how to document and meet an ASHRAE standard that they should have been taught in college is what my partner tells me over and over as a licensed architect and and a mechanical background, so. Yeah, you, well, you know, it's it's frightening. I got a magazine here, I don't know where it is, somewhere on my desk, and there was, it was on health and wellness. It was and mainly to deal with nutrition and exercise and that kind of stuff. But there was a feature article on there by a well-certified architect, and I started reading it, and I just, you know, like, I, I need to write the editor, actually, because there was a lot of references that were incorrect and a lot of misleading information, and... And I, and I know that because I sit on these standards and I know the research work that goes into it. I know how to apply it. And as a practicing engineer, I have to take responsibility or I had to when I practice, you know, for these criteria. Another sidebar, then Adam, I know I'm, <laughs> I don't know a lot of stuff here. We, you know, we know that roughly something like 80% of all buildings in the continent of North America are less than 25,000 square feet. Oftentimes there's no professional requirement to design these buildings What's your comment on, you know, when you talk about lead well, Brian and all these other ones, they apply to such a small percentage yeah. of property development. When you look at the numbers and where we're actually bleeding, it's in this less than 25,000 square foot where there is no or very little professional design requirement, particularly on mechanical and lighting system, sound systems. So if you look at the three complaints, sound, thermal and lighting, the top three, what do we do about that? About that? percentage that represents most of the buildings on the continent that just will never, ever meet these requirements. Yeah, it's interesting. We surprisingly get a lot of small projects that go between 4,000 and 25,000 square feet. I literally, I think I got five new ones today that were all like 30,000. There's one 30,000 and the rest were 20,000 or less all around the country. And it's hard if they're doing one single one right? Because there's just no economy of scale. And we're really honest with them. We're like, 
we're really sorry, but this number isn't going to be pretty until you get to at least 20,000 square feet or more. You know, it's just like it, it, it 4,000, 6,000, 10,000 square feet. It's expensive. And so I, this is where it becomes an equity issue, right? Is it only healthy for the wealthy and only sustainability for the wealthy if we don't have this ability? And I think that's something that, again, IWBI has done really well is they have a lot of discounts, whether it's for nonprofits, whether it's for small businesses. So even just having like a discount for small businesses, right, is, is a game changer. If you're a small business, you're probably in a 20,000, 25,000 or smaller square foot. Space, right. But I think that what we see with a lot of those spaces is that that's why you have some more of these ancillary rating systems or standards. So in USGB or in, in Los Angeles, the USGBCLA has created a healthy building alliance. It's, you know, less than a thousand dollars. I think it might be like five hundred dollars or something. Don't quote me on that. But it's five simple things you can do in your building, right? So it's looking at air, it's looking at a survey, it's got these few things, and they've got experts that you can reach out to that have been vetted on the page and certain products or sensors that have been vetted by like LAWWP and other people. But it's a way for people to start out without having to put a whole bunch of expenditure. So if you don't have a team, right, because you're a small project or you don't have, you know, architects, designers, et cetera, MEPs, doing some of these smaller like ratings or certifications or alliances allow you to do that initial benchmarking with someone else saying, hey, we've already done the hard work. Here's the five most important things you could start with. And you know, you're going to pay us for the little thing that you're going to get at the end to show that you've accomplished something. But more so, we've done all the research and here's what you can do. And you can you know, go through our, all of what we're providing for you. And so I think that for a lot of those smaller spaces, that's what we see, or we see more of a white glove approach. So they'll ask us to design into their standards, sustainability and wellness, right? But that's what they're paying us to do is to design their standards for the architect to then put in all of those attributes that will really make a difference for them regardless of whether or not they actually get a, a certification. Yeah. So one last thing that Adam, I'll shut, I'll shut up. And I want to illustrate again, and, and there's, a, there's a reason for my madness here. And that is, I want to illustrate again with one more question about the disconnect between, you know, where well is and where your passion lies and what is actually happening in the street. And that has to do with the difference between building codes and standards. Yeah. And a lot of people think that, you know, if you build the building code, which is the lowest common denominator, you know, before they have to fail you, you know, we've been teaching people for decades that, that building codes are based on reducing risk of illness, not necessarily for efficiency or comfort or wellness, if you will. So how do you comment on the spread between your passion, what you would like to see, let's just say a hundred years from now, you look back on your body of work, influencing the world, transforming the world and the building codes, how do we get to yeah. your vision? Yeah, ironically, I think that with wellness, human health and wellness, it'll be easier to move the building codes faster than sustainability did because sustainability isn't having that same impact on human health, right? So when you look at, suddenly we know if you don't do this to your building, there's this risk that's now attached and person A in your building can sue you because you could have mitigated this and you chose not to. That's going to drive codes faster. So IWBI actually does have a team working with cities and governments to start looking at. Right? So they're very much focusing on and working on that because IWBI knows that working at the single building level isn't going to make the difference we all want to see in our lifetime. We need to be working with portfolios, with cities, with governments, with organizations. That's really where the vast change will be made. And that's why they focus so much on 
well portfolio and, and now they have you know their communities and cities and then again jason hartke over there and his team are really focused on how do we get the building codes changed how do we get the local governments and cities to start putting this into their local city codes much like they have with lead requirements so i do think we will see this move much more rapidly than sustainability did a because sustainability is already set the precedence of you can do this. This is why it's important. This is how we do it. But secondly, I think that there's a lot more risk mitigation around human health once you have the knowledge and you choose to do nothing about it. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, local building code at the municipal level is the way to go because they react faster. The further up the food chain you go, the slower the reaction, the slower, the more inertia you meet, right? So, you know, Title 24 is a great example of that in California. You know, that ultimately will probably upward infiltrate to building code, right? So, yeah, I think that's a great strategy. We had uh, Saeed Al-Abar on. said that, right? Saeed said that, yeah. He said that back two years ago, I think, when we were talking to him that change will occur at a local municipal level, not at the yeah. grandiose, you know, federal levels, because the federal levels just seem to be reluctant. There's just so much protectionism, cronyism, siloism, what, put an ISM oh. on it. And they'll, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 but yeah. when you think of it, like America and Canada to a large degree as well. So it took, till I moved to North America or worked in America, I didn't understand it, right? I come from the UK. It's a country, right? I come to America. I've come to realize it's like 51 countries stapled together with duct tape, right? So <laughs> the federal stuff yeah. is just so toxic. You've got to get out of there. You've got to accept that ain't working, and it's at the local level where people live and interact every day. That's where the impact is. You know, and then you can export good practice at that point, right? Which is, I guess, the California model in a way, right? We're trying to export that standard. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what's been so successful here, right? Is California has done it at this local level and, and really pushed it and made it part of our codes. And because of that, we do less lead work here, maybe because we're already doing it in our codes, which is great. I would like to not have a job because everyone's just doing this naturally and we're not needed anymore. Yep, exactly. Uh, I want to do, I actually want to give a shout out to the West Coast. Not to say that the East Coast of the continent hasn't done, because New York's done some pretty amazing stuff and is going to, yeah, boy, they got the <laughs> boxing gloves on. They're in for, yeah, there's going to be some big changes there. But the West Coast, from California all the way up to uh, British Columbia and Canada, have done exactly that. It's been a more of a micromanagement of leading the, the industry. And I want to give a shout out here to Will Malung from BC Housing, because out of all the housing organizations that I've worked with over the last decades, they have started to teach their builders and architects about thermal comfort. And that drives building and closure design, which improves Whoa. efficiency and sustainability, all the words, right? But the, but the solution is human-based. Yeah. And if it hadn't been for her and her team understanding the relationship between how we design the enclosure and the architectural features and how that impacts thermal comfort, they would have continued. It would have been situation normal, built a building code. But that's not the strategy that they took. And as a result, they're leading change, just like what's happening in California. So... A shout out to the West Coast leadership. And of course, you're part of that. So, yeah. yeah absolutely. It was interesting hearing you talk about the, um, you know, sometimes you're asked to get involved in stuff you shouldn't be involved in, right? Like, for God's sake, can we comply with this code? We've all agreed to comply with it. That's one of the reasons I think, certainly in my business, when I had an m design firm was lead consulting became unprofitable because you get sucked in to incompetence and fixing it, right? So my top tip for you, because I've got the T-shirt on that nightmare you've lived, 
and I've got the hat as well. When I had the kickoff meeting, I would say to them, not only are you going to write to me a compliance letter, you're going to stamp it with your professional engineer. That gets their attention. And then I, I do the evil thing of following up and actually asking for it. <laughs> that, that took about half of my aggravation away because then they wound up putting someone senior on the job and my whole life got better. So that's my top tip for you. You're welcome. <laughs> that's great. I'll remember that one. Thanks. <laughs> the old one I used to do was video the kickoff meeting. So oh. when people get their selective amnesia, you go, hang on a minute. Didn't we see this? In the kickoff? That's a good one. That would have helped in this case. <laughs> yeah. Selective amnesia. Yeah. Yeah. So selective amnesia late in the job is just everywhere, right? It's such a problem in our industry. I don't understand why. <laughs> yeah. I, so it's just fascinating because, you know, does the world need another certification system? No. What the world probably does need is some of the older ones to die and go away, right? Yeah. And the newer ones oh, and take it all. That's what we need. We need a Game of Thrones approach here. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you should get your dragon and Welk and burn off all the other ones. I don't know. But there needs to be a... Strangely, there's no consolidation. In other industries, you get a consolidation when you get all these players. And I think maybe that might be what's coming. You know, you need a, a Jack Walsh type, maybe at the helm of well, who says, right, I am going to eviscerate you, lead and Briam, and I'm going to bring you all into my camp. That's what's needed, I think. Maybe. I don't know. That's my... Or at least a partnership of some kind where, you know, the biggest ones have come out and they've all partnered. And it's like, okay, if you're doing all of this, it's here is a package, you know, and because some people do want to focus on sustainability or wellness or waste, right? Like they do only want to focus on the little piece that they can manage to start with. And then it hopefully will engage them in other areas as well. But the fact that so many of them don't work together or don't, you know, that there's not a way to easily do all of it. And there's so many competing. So we spend half of our time trying to help clients understand the benefits of, you know, which they would like to do, you know. Too, too much choice. The menu's too big. It's like, it's like the Cheesecake Factory menu. It takes it a half an hour just to read it, right? It's like too yeah. much. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, started to, I had to actually hire a bodyguard in, uh, because of, of the sacrilege that I always bring to my ASHRAE lectures. And one of them was on sustainability and uh, indoor environmental quality, which one should drive the bus. And the reality is, is that based on our research work, we know that we can condition people in spaces with 77 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, plus or minus 22.5 degrees Fahrenheit. That means any temperature lower than the human, human body can actually be used to condition spaces. And, I, and when we get these people, particularly energy modelers and people that are writing sustainability and energy standards, that they could actually delete 80% of the text within the standards, reduce it from being several hundreds of pages down to maybe 10, right? That if you just made one statement that that building shall not use any temperature, 77 and a half degrees plus or minus 22.5 degrees Fahrenheit, full stop. Then what happens is it forces the architects and the engineers to work with that temperature range. And then you solve the energy problem and the thermal comfort problem and the lighting problem and the sound problem. Yeah, but you also explode 20 heads in the meeting room. Right? Exactly. That's why I needed the bodyguard because they're just, their heads start spinning because A, it reduced their, it deleted everything that they've been working on for the last 15 years. All of the compliances that they had to go through, they hate me now. But the reality is it can turn their documents into 10 pages long and then it lets the professionals do what they were educated to do. And that is to apply engineering principles. Yeah fundamentals get forget the documentation yeah. all of the verbiage all the text all that <laughs> bullshit and just let them do their job and well it I, evidently it's too simple <laughs> you know and so i don't know i just i throw that out there because it's it doesn't have to be complicated 
No, it doesn't. Sorry, people sorry. definitely make it complicated. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say I agree. People definitely make it complicated. Yeah. 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 No, I wanna, we, we're sort of coming up on time and I want we do a couple of quick rapid fire questions. The other reason we were keen to have you on, not just talk about well, was that you're a, a woman in a business that's pretty much just men everywhere, right? Throw a brick any direction, you're going to hit a guy in the head, right? There's just no two ways about it. So I'm always, as a father of a daughter who's a mechanical engineer, I'm always fascinated by seeing the world through her eyes, right? Because for her, it looks like she has to overcome a lot of things, right? I always say to her, you're not, just be awesome and you will just rise to the top, right? That's it. And that's true, but it's also She's right as well. Do you know what I mean? There is a infrastructure to overcome, right? A status quo to push through. So I'm, I'm interested. Have you found that a real struggle in your career in this business? It was definitely interesting, you know, coming from the entertainment industry and then into, you know, the design construction industry, yeah. which, like you said, was so much men, especially when I got into it, you know, at this yeah. point, it's been 15 years. It was more that I looked so young. So at that age, I looked so young that I walked in and they'd be like, who is she and why is she my boss? Are you kidding me? Like, especially because I was like the owner's rep on these big projects and that I was running sustainability. And they were just like, you know, I'd get dirty looks when I was pregnant at 30 because I looked like I was like, you know, 12. So there was definitely those experiences. And as I got older, it was funny because in recent years, I like... So often I'd be on a site and a guy'd be like, okay, honey, watch out for stuff. Like, you know, you're on a job site. Like, and I'm like, have you ever been to Africa or Nepal and built like built with your hands rebar and like dog with a, a basket while the dog's next to you and the woman and the children are barefoot next to you? Because that's the job sites I'm used to working on. So I'm pretty sure I can step over whatever is in my way. My eyes still work despite <laughs> yeah. being a woman. So there definitely was, but I was also really, really lucky to have some incredible men. Like some of the first men I worked with in construction were just like, they took me under their wing. They like taught me everything I needed to know. And they were just really lovely human beings and men and like mentors in that way. And, and my bosses, I was just always lucky that, you know, the guys I'd been working with were phenomenal. And so for the most part, it was, you know, like I, I had a few of those people I've dealt with, but I think, you know, even as men, you probably deal with people who are horrible every once in a while as well. But I definitely got the looks for being young and, I definitely had to prove myself in, in certain instances. And, and I, I can remember specifically with engineers, Robert, you made a comment and it made me think about it. I had this engineer tell me once, he was like, oh, I can't do that. That's going to cost X amount of thousands of dollars. And, and I was on a call and everyone else was in a room. So 20 some people like, you know, the architects, the team, the owners, et cetera. And I was like, actually, if you just go in and hit this drop down, it should take you about five minutes and you'll have exactly what I'm asking for in your, in your program. <laughs> and that should cost me five minutes of your time, not what you just quoted in a five figure. And literally it was silence. And people after the call were just like, I didn't even know what to do or say. And I was like, yeah, because he took me as some young woman who had no idea what his engineering systems were, but like, I knew exactly what I was asking for in a report in his system. And yeah. So yeah, you, you definitely find yourselves having to call people out or put them in their place once in a while. And I don't hold back on that because it's like, don't don't take advantage or think I don't know because I'm either young or a woman. And, um, and I'm very protective of the women who work for me now that are young. And uh, someone said something the other day, like she's our project manager. And I was like, she's done 260 health safety ratings, which is almost <laughs> more than anyone in the world and probably meant more sort of like, and I like 
you know, and she's like 23 or 24, but she's our main, you know, well, project manager and he has more experience than most people in the world. And he literally said, he's like, what did he say? It was something like, well, I've been humbled. Okay, I got it. Like, and he just was like really cool about it after that. But it was like, you know, I could tell she had been put off and I was like, are you calling him? Why did you ask that? Because I stopped talking and said she was your person and I looked 20 years older. So uh, yeah, I definitely call things out in, in pleasant ways, but sometimes to be uh, right. you know, so, nice to new that. clients, but yeah, it does that. happen. Construction is like an episode of Mad Men always, right? <laughs> it's just like, but it's about confidence. So my advice certainly to my daughters is, you know, be awesome, but also be confident, right? Know yeah. when to be humble and know when to speak up. And I think it's the confidence thing that is really the key flipping point in my observations, you know, because trouble with men is particularly the less they know, the more noisy they are. The empty vessels make the loudest noise, you know what I mean? <laughs> and whenever you see someone squawking and shouting, that's always covering up for incompetence or a lack of knowledge normally, in my opinion, right? And that's where I think women have an advantage over men. They know themselves better. And, it, you know, my advice to any woman, if you're in a meeting and there's some dude, like, freaking out, no, that guy knows nothing, and you should be speaking up immediately. <laughs> you know, it's great. I'm just I'm going back to my website because I talked about this back in 2002, 2004. Back then, Popcorn and Marigold had a book that was doing really well at the time. And, you know, they said things like, men and women don't think the same way, don't communicate the same way, don't buy for the same reasons. And when I was studying that whole gender approaches to marketing and real estate and consumer goods, you know, there was a lot of work done that was that sort of basically suggested, you know what, when it comes to things like health, wellness, spaces that people occupy, men need to get the hell out of the way <laughs> and let women drive that particular messaging. And one of the ones that came out from another book, Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't read maps, <laughs> which was pretty funny. But it just says a woman knows her child's friends, hopes, dreams, romance, secret fears, and what they're thinking and how they're feeling. Men are vaguely aware of some short people who are also living in the house. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, you know, sort of, sort of one of my last questions for you, Jennifer, is that, you know, when you think about the gender and I mean, this is not new. We've studied this for decades. You know, it's all published. I mean, why do we have such a reluctance to let that gender, the female voice, come through in design? Because it's incredibly important, and we know that. But why such? Why so much resistance? Do you think exists? Well, I mean, I think it's you know, it's, it's interesting because I've been looking at a you know, looking at a lot of our industry to look at okay, you know, are there BIPOC people at the top? Why are BIPOC people never speaking at my conferences? Oh, because they're not at the top of their companies. Why did they not get to the top of their companies, right? And I feel like women have have made that progression further. Where I used to sit in a room and it was all men. Now I'm starting to see a room with you know women at the table. I have a lot of women facilities and engineers, which is always shocking when they're like, oh, you're going to talk to Sam, and I'm like, wait, Sam's a woman this is awesome. Chris is a woman. Like, ironically, I'm on one team with Sam and Chris and they were both women. And I was like, this is so fun. I love this. I do think women are moving further. I think that women didn't get into the industry, right? This is your, your math. Like when you look at the background of classes, it's those STEM classes 
that little girls were never pushed into. So they didn't rise up and they didn't make it to that level to then become high enough up or a partner or a principal at an architectural firm that was predominantly white men, right? At most companies in general. And I think now we're starting to see women, we're starting to see people of color start to move into those positions. But you know, you go to conferences, it was a lot of white men for a long time. And now in the health and wellness, you see a lot of women. So that really has a lot of women at the top, which is interesting. So John, my partner's like, I'm the only guy on calls these days. I used to be, <laughs> the, you know, the, the all it was all, it was like one woman might be on our call and it was all men. He's like, now I'm like a token white guy on every call. It's so weird. And he loves it, of course. It's great. It's, it's really, I think, starting to change a lot in the consulting world, especially, but the, the health and wellness world, IWBI, I used to joke, I was like, are there any men over there? Every person I work with has been a woman for the most part. And even in leadership, they have a lot of, you know, a lot of women in their leadership, which is really exciting as well. Yeah. A lot of women are starting to move because there's a time lag, right? You've got to go through the education, your learning phase. So there is a lag between the want and the delivery, right? But I think more and more young women are going into STEM. You have to accept sometimes it's just not an attractive field, right? You either want to do math, hard math, or you don't, right? I know I didn't all the way through university. I did not want to do hard math, right? (laughs) Just something I wound up doing. But I think it will change. And now I've got a fifth grader doing eighth grade, ninth grade algebra. Like I went to to open house last night. He's supposed to be in fifth grade. He's in sixth and he's doing ninth grade algebra. And I'm like, I hope he doesn't ask for help because there is no way that I'm going to be able to help him with his math anymore. This is like beyond me, you know, and he loves it. He took a math academy. So yeah, it's definitely to see what people are drawn to. I wish there was Khan Academy when I was going through <laughs> my university and college and high school. But yeah. you know, my going just to close on equity before we get to short fire, equity for me means, and the future I hope to see, certainly for my children, is where equity means if you're good, you're good. It's objective, right? This is how I like that, the Navy SEAL thing. You can either run five miles with a boat on your head or you can't, right? It's not like I like you. You're a Navy SEAL. It's can you do it? Yes or no, right? Can you lead that job? Yes or no. Can you do the math? Yes or no. That's the world where equity exists, right? And then you find out, Margaret Thatcher is a great example, right? She was a woman before before her time. They interviewed her. So she was like our Reagan, if you like, right? And she said, they said to her, how? Because the Conservative Party was like so male-dominated. And she somehow rose to top got rid of everyone in her path and ruled it like Khaleesi for 10 years, right? And they said to her, how did you do that? She said, I was just better than them. Yep. And you know what I loved about that? She owned it. It was not, oh, yeah. you know, it was just, no, I was better than them. Next question. <laughs> That's the world I want for my children and my daughters, right? If they yeah. are better than, they will rise to the top. That is equity for me, but that's me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fortunate to have uh, participation in a world scientist group. There's about 50 of us. And I would say probably 70% of the members in this group are women. And we it's a diverse group of participants. We have epidemiologists, virologists, lawyers, all kinds of healthcare professionals, surgeons, whatever in it. And what I love about it is that the non-building related professional, particularly the healthcare workers, whether it's, you know, the family physician or the school teacher. These are women who are now starting to appreciate what it means to ventilate a building and to filter the air and to have good lighting and sound. 
So my short, rapid question, having been exposed now to this enlightenment that's occurring within other professions, is let's just say, Jennifer, you're talking to, you know, uh, the graduating class from the Harvard Medical Community, and you're talking about your passion for the built environment. What do you say to that graduating class of doctors, future doctors? Sure. Um, What I would say to them is that, you know, their work is much larger than they realize, right? It's not just about medicine, like food, nutrition is medicine, you know, getting natural daylight is medicine. And so as doctors, they're really responsible for educating people and using a holistic, you know, a holistic way to, to treat their, their patients that looks at them, you know, from ways that aren't just like what's wrong with you, but a preventative, are you eating right? Are you, you know, happy and, and looking at the whole human as opposed to just illness, illnesses that they're, they're trying to take care of or symptoms. Yeah. Cool. yeah good um, answer. My rapid fire question is, this might be a bit unfair. What would you take out of well or lead and push into the building code tomorrow if I gave you one option? Oh, there's so many things I'd want to do. That's really hard. <laughs> I mean, at this point with COVID, it would it would just have to be, you know, higher ventilation codes. It would be, you know, raising. Yeah, I, I think air is just like that. The thing we know that affects every single person in every single building and is one of the things we pay least attention to and is really some of the worst in our buildings. So I would say some air code that's way higher than what it is now that really provides what we need. Yeah, I agree. I think if people understood how much recirculated air they were sucking in in, a, in an office or a hotel, they would be horrified. And how badly that was vent, that was filtered, it is just frightening. That's the problem of knowing how the sausage is made, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True enough. And but you know, people Vegetarian. are. <laughs> And our listeners need to understand that, you know, the things like this pathogen and the pandemic that's occurring worldwide is forcing organizations like ASHRAE and SIPSI to look at our ventilation standards. You know, we did have a higher rate before. It went down due to energy requirements, came back up again. So it has been on a yo-yo, no doubt about it. But there are obviously a lot of professionals looking at this subject matter right now and asking the question, do we have in place now? rates and filtration requirements are going to serve us for the next pandemic that shows up. And we know that's not the case. We have to make changes. So the listeners need to understand that we're not sitting idle. That's for sure. Uh, we need, we need dedicated outside air deep recovery. That should be minimum code requirement. In my opinion. I'm with you on that one for sure. This is why I am not King of America or on any building code committee. <laughs> <laughs> that's an exercise in frustration for sure. Okay, Look, Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on because I know we had a little yeah, forwards, and uh, I appreciate you engaging with me, and I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing because really, we're all pulling in the same direction here, right? Which is let's just make things better because they can certainly yeah, get better as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. This was really fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, when people see us online arguing and are debating, it's it actually is good stuff. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Even even the stuff that comes out of Adam's arguments is good. So <laughs> it was great. We we have this, so it's perfect. I have a tough heart, but there's also a one in there somewhere. <laughs> okay, well, it's so all the better just to bring awareness. So yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate yeah. it. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. 
frankly, it's just chaos out there. Brutalism removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. Their team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. So, Adam, as Jennifer's interview came about, it had to do with you and her having a discussion online. And uh, there was obviously some, you know, commentary that went back and forth that, that enticed you to invite her. And I'm glad you did. I love her adjacent study and how it's come into the world of architecture and design property development. And I love the, her calling card about transforming the world. That's a big <laughs> statement. I love that, though. Yeah, I mean... I was thinking about this the other day. So I have a gold watch that my grandfather got for 25 years working for the same firm, and I'm going to hand it on to my son. It always goes down to the, the sons in our family, right? Yeah. I, was about, I was thinking, is anyone ever going to work anywhere for 25 years today? Mm. Right? It may, really made me think. And then you look at someone like Jennifer, right? So she starts off, There's a sun, the sunk cost fallacy is I've spent all these years getting these degrees, right? So I'm a social worker, right? Yep, she goes, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm going to pivot here, right? So the, the takeaway from that is, is awesome in that don't get trapped in the sunk cost fallacy. You can reinvent yourself and still use your education, right? Yeah. So she found a way to reuse that education. I love that being a social worker. <laughs> sustainability is social work, right? Just take that micro and macro that out to the wide thing. That is great. If, yeah, if you want to talk about, the, you know, we, we use the word reframing. Yeah. <laughs> she reframed at a level that, that is, well, it's, it's exemplary and it's uh, admirable. And it's got, I mean, what she's doing now is she's achieving her, her love and her passion for the humanities through a path that has a, a much broader impact. I mean, she could have remained a social worker and worked on a case-by-case basis with whatever her field of study was on yeah. an individual basis. And maybe in one year, 
she would affect whatever 30 people 100 people but in her role now she's affecting thousands and thousands of people and all she did was reframe what what it was yeah. that she was doing there's impact there there's a lesson there about change there's a lesson there about development and pivoting there's also a lesson there about impact right yeah so i had this with someone who worked for me we had we we won the walmart account right and someone came into me and said no i don't want to work for walmart that evil i said look if you can convince them just to do something sustainable and they roll that out to their thousands of stores do you know what impact that is yeah you know that's the what we're talking about here right it's all very well you know build the most sustainable townhouse in toronto but really no one cares but if you can shift a super tanker yeah like Walmart into something more energy efficient, that is impact at scale, right? And that's really what she's doing. I love that. And yeah. the other thing I really liked about Jennifer was we really sort of got into it backwards and forwards in a bit of an argument. So to be fair, I picked on her a bit because she was there and I was having a bad day. And I sort of like started. That's why you're the official agitator. Yeah. And she came back at me. And but the thing is, right? And this is why I don't like politics today. We are probably on opposite ends of a spectrum, yet we managed to have a discussion and come together. And really, we're really going in the same direction. We just got slightly different takes on things, right? And different experience, different lived experiences. And the point is, there's two people here who are opposite ends of a lived experience, managed to come together, have a productive conversation, agree on certain things, right? That's what you need. That's how progress is made. So after one of the things I came away with for this interview was we're all pulling in the same direction, right? Just you, you know, I have a few ticks about certain things. You have a few ticks about certain things. And she has a perspective on things, right? But they're all going in a better direction than we are, right? That's that. I'm well, getting somewhere, but well, and the word that brought, brought you two together was equity, ultimately. Oh. It was e equity. And in your terms of for you in terms of the financial equity and then her in terms of the humanity equity, but in the, in the big scheme of things, it's the same word. Yeah. You can't have equity in the humanities without equity in the financial world. And you can't have equity in the financial world without equity in the humanities. And yeah. there's injustices in both. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's a, that's a <laughs> you know, the path that that travels down has boundaries that shifts back and forth. Yeah. But ultimately, you you need both. Otherwise, we lose our identity as a race. You know, we you know, if you just had equity purely on the financial side, there'll be suffering and there'll be consequences because the parasitic loss on the financial side will become a huge part of your day to day worries. You know, yeah. it'll it'll and it'll manifest itself in things like. Bills aren't getting paid. People are getting sick. Medical systems are stressed out. Buildings aren't getting maintained. So then taxes will have to go up and that's going to have an impact on the finances, right? But if you shift that equity to the humanities side, then education becomes important. Personal health becomes important. Yeah. You know, raising healthy, well-adjusted individuals to contribute to societies becomes important. So equity to me seems to be the word that brought you to is a bit like sustainability it's one of the trigger words that it will immediately turn 40 percent of people off right mm. so this is why it needs defining and discussion so if you think you think about cities and countries right they're systems and in that system there's people there's assets there's energy use there's 
there's environmental use, there's equity, right? And it's the base, how you balance these things out so that they affect, they give the biggest, broadest benefit to everybody, right? That's for yeah. the equity, but it's complex, right? So at one end, you've got oh, equity or sustainability, and half people just go, oh, please stop talking about that, right? And I, to be honest, I'm a little bit in that game. But there's, if you start defining it as people and systems, and this is what it means, that's where you get the impact, right? It's how this is, this, I'm telling you, man, this is an advertising, this is a Madison Avenue advertising problem. <laughs> Climate change, sustainability, equity. We need to get the top marketing people on this and redefine them so that people can relate to them. Yeah. Right? Because when you keep them at that sort of esoteric level, it gives people the excuse to check out on them. Climate change, yeah. I can't affect that. So yeah. I check out, right? Right? But yeah. you can stop chucking plastic in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's the same thing as where is Exergy. We've talked about Exergy in the past in terms of energy systems, right? But there's Exergy in financial systems. There's Exergy in social systems. Yes. You know, so that word, you know, could travel into any field of study that you want to talk about, just like equity can. But you're right. The esoteric meaning of some of these terms, people will, it'll just live just, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to talk about it, right? But it gives an excuse, right? So, I've watched this documentary on Netflix about the sea and how horrifically bad we have been with it. Because it's hidden and you can't see what's going on, you don't know. So it's full yeah. of plastic, you know, it's a source of protein, it's going away. I think Kamala Harris was talking the other day about future water wars. This is where it's all going, right? And because it's hidden, people can check out. If you use, it, if you use soft, squidgy words like sustainability, people can check out, right? But if you say to someone, we as a country municipality, we're going to monitor how much plastic and rubbish we chuck in the sea, right? And we're going to publish that every week. And we're going to make you look at a video, uh, an image of that at the end of the news every night. You see yep. how soon people change, right? Because there's an accountability when it's in your face. You can see how much rubbish we chuck in the sea. It's just nuts. But, you know, it's a, it's a, Game theory comes in here. <clears throat> Tragedy of the commons, right? It's everybody's and nobody's problem at the same time. Yeah. So it's everybody's problem because we've got plastic in our food chain with fish, right? But it ain't my problem because I am not live this near the sea and I don't chuck stuff in the sea directly. We all chuck stuff in the sea indirectly, right? So I can switch off. I've got an excuse not to be too concerned or not be in action over it, right? I've got an out. Because it's not in my face. So yeah. I know I'm start, starting to sound like a Greenpeace warrior here, but it's, <laughs> I'm not. I'm a, I'm a nutter. I'm not like that. But the fact is, it's going to get, do we let it get to a point where it gets so bad it's just in everyone's face completely? Or do we start trying to be a little bit proactive and define it better, measure it, see it, and do something, right? Yeah, I, I like your comment there about publishing the impact, what's actually happening. People yeah. need to know that. And there should be no different than like a weather barometer. You know, you look at the weather today, what is the what is our society's impact on yeah. our environmental resources? And, you know, I think that's really important. It, well, and again, it goes back to the, you know, it's a cliche, right? But if you can't measure it, you know, that whole statement. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 I, if you don't see it, you can just say, oh, not me. <laughs> I'm doing me, mate. I saw my rubbish. The garbage guy takes it away. I'm a good boy. Okay? Yeah. And that's, well, 
think both of you and I, you know, are capitalist pigs. Oh yeah, down inside. <laughs> but I, you know, I I know myself. You know, few. I guess I'll, it'll be coming up on a decade now, where I was starting to look at my behavior as yeah. a citizen of the world, and that's really where the, my whole earth stewardship shift came. You know, yeah. what? How am I as a steward of the earth? And I started to make changes. I still love the contribution that business and economics and finance have in terms of making society stable and not. Yeah. You know, when you look at where economics and, and finance has run amok within the hands of one or two people in other nations, the battles, the wars, yeah. pestilence, the sicknesses that occur, you know, the, the free world as we know it and the developed nations and the capitalistic systems, you know, I mean, it has its pros and cons. But I think more and more of us, particularly in the baby boomer, because let's face it, Adam. As a consumer, we suck really bad. And, yeah. and, you know, but I think a lot of us have started to realize as we get older in life and we get a little bit more wiser and, you know, we, we're done collecting things. And I know like when I, when I renovated and sold my house, the stuff that I had in it and the stuff I ended up giving away and throwing away. I don't know. Like, you didn't need it, right? You haven't missed it? Have you thought about it since? No. <laughs> Not a chance. I'm living in that place. It's a quarter of the size that I used to. <clears throat> and I still don't use it at all, you know? But what I have here are the things that are most important to me. You know, the artwork, my guitars, my music, the pictures of my family. You know, that's those are the things that matter at the end of the day. And, and the belongings that we had before in the past you know, or I forgot about them. They mean nothing. Do I miss them? Yeah, maybe some of the things I miss, but really, not not really. <laughs> we, we need, I hate using the word reset, but there needs to. The, yeah, the trick here is to provide the incentives and disincentives to mobilize capitalism to solve this problem. Top-down fear doesn't work, right? No. For example, Detroit, right? It's a disaster, right? Yeah. It's a you know San Francisco is a future Detroit, by the way, right? So. What's the answer? If I was king of America, which I want to be, by the way, my resume is available if you want it. Um, <laughs> I would say for the next 10 years in Detroit, you can build on a brownfield site tax-free and all the proceeds from that will be tax-free for 10 years. Go. Greenfield sites, I'm going to tax you to death. But for 10 years in this window on any brownfield site, everything you spend, everything you gain will be tax-free. And but you've got to remediate the site, you've got to develop it, right? That's one way, that's an incentive, right? Then you know, capitalism piles in and hopefully does it. But I don't know. And well, we've talked about this before, and Ireland did that, right? Making incentives for corporations to come and set up shop. And I gotta tell you, for those that are listening, you have any political will, political influence, or you want to look at attracting capital, there are examples around the world, and Ireland did a marvelous job of yeah. taking revenues from one location and shifted it to another, and now they're benefiting from it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that Donald Trump was saying in code was, I'm angry at Ireland because Apple keep their profits there and don't send them back to America, right? And he was trying to stop that because Apple, are, actually, Apple is registered in Ireland. You know, it's got something like $250 billion in cash. That's, most of that's offshore. And it ain't going back into America because of the tax rate. Yeah, and for those Ireland's that want to... Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, all of this, wah, 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 
got news for you, people. It's a freaking global society. There are no borders when it comes to cash. Cash moves at milliseconds, and it will move wherever opportunity exists. And you can cry a river, and you can blow through boxes and boxes of Kleenex till the cows come home. Wake up. It, your, your ears aren't going to change dick shit about anything. And that's important to understand, right? Yeah. We, we live in a rules-based world now. In the past, America would have gone there, invaded Ireland, said, stop that. You're ours now. And that would have been that. But with TV, CNN, and we're all in this rules-based world, you can't do that anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as a concrete example, people, for that are listening, Tesla now accepts Bitcoin for payments for your car, for their cars. So screw off with the economics, you know, like, you, again, like trying to control where money flows. As soon as big companies like Tesla start accepting cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. That's a problem for the U.S. That's a big problem. You yeah, need to wake up and smell the roses. The things are not the way they were in the past, and they're not going to be the way they are in the future. Get over it. The answer is you've got to somehow assign a value to the environment using blockchain and sort of smart contracts and then provide incentives and disincentives around it. That's, that's how I do it. Yep, yeah. On a... So well, Gezi, when we had Gezi on, right, Paul, and, and uh, you know, he talked about that whole concept. And when yeah. we had a couple of other guys on, too, and, and women that talk about the our infrastructure, architectural infrastructure, property development infrastructure as an asset, a collective asset and a resource, and uh, putting value on the exchange of energy and currencies. Yeah. It's an interesting area, and I and I as I think I mean you're on top of that more than most people that we're really starting to see the beginnings of that. Yeah. You know, the collective power of our infrastructure yeah. as a source of revenues and data, and I mean it's big, big, big stuff. Listen, you're seeing fundamental change here. On Steve Fawkes, who came on a little while ago, the UK guy, he says the minute we can monetize energy efficiency, everything will change. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that is done via small contracts and blockchain. Yeah. yeah then you can financialize it and then the money arrives. Right? That's that's where that sits. But you know, it's the early days. Anyway, we're yeah. having some big thoughts here, man. This is my brain is hurting. Well, it is. And that, you know, well, and again, for our listeners, we have some really cool things coming up, panel discussion. I think, Adam, one of the things that we should maybe one of the panel discussions that we're in the planning stage has to do with um uh, ethics, uh, but we ought to bring in back guys like Steve Fox and Paul Gezi and a couple of other people to talk about economies and property development and yeah, how monetizing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a cool actually. I'll work on that. Anyway, man, my brain is about yeah. some big thoughts here. <laughs> oh, we always do, dude. All right, man. See you in the next one. All right, see ya. Take care. Cheers, bye. Cheers. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.